Welcome to A Pot Upon a Hill. I'm Mr. Vosliatis. I'm Mr. Copeland. Today we're going to dive into the second half of the 5-1 notes. We're taking you all the way to the outbreak, outbreak of the Civil War. Here we go. So we've been building and building this tension in our country politically, socially, um, and now it starts to come to a head where we start to see extremists ride to the forefront. And a large part of this is because of the way in which Kansas-Nebraska Act incentivizes people to rush out and take, stake their claim to the land to determine whether this will be a slave or a free state. Basically, the act is like the opening of Pandora's box, and it's going to prompt a lot of people, as Mr. Copeland said, to go and rush to Kansas as soon as possible. Majority of the farmers in Kansas, however, um, already are going to vote to prohibit slavery. So there's going to be incentive for the slave owner advocates to rush their residents to the territory in order to vote to allow slavery. And just to the east, you have the Missouri uh, state that is slavery, uh, expanded there with the Missouri Compromise. And that is a huge a aspect of this border dispute is that many of them are traveling quickly over and trying to establish governments to determine, all right, this is the rightful government of this territory. So you have free soilers and abolitionist groups forming within this um, eastern part of Kansas. Um, you even have groups all the way as far as New England sending people to settle there specifically because they're an ab their abolitionist cause specific we have here in the notes the new england emigrant aid company that would pay for people's and incentivize people to go um, settle there if they would promise to vote for anti-slavery uh, government and with this like radical migration of polarizing peoples fighting uh, will soon break out between these two groups uh people called border ruffians uh these are people that would be characterized as crossing the border of kansas just simply to to pack in the numbers or the votes uh for pro-slavery uh for a pro-slavery legislator will be found in lecompton and in reaction anti-slavery settlers will create another legislator in topeka so you're basically affecting you're basically having two different types of legislatures in the same state of Kansas. Yeah, both claiming that they are the rightful authority of the Kansas' government. And so in 1856, we see the first outbreak of violence where the pro-slavery slavery settlers attack the anti-slavery town. Two are killed in response. Two days later, we have a, the first example of um, this character we're going to talk quite a bit about. John Brown and his sons attack a pro-slavery town, killing five. But this wasn't just a battle where gunshots are uh, exchanged. This was a brutal massacre where uh, machetes and weapons were used and these men were left butchered in the stream there of Patawatomi Creek. This is where it uh, really brought the issue and gave the name of Bleeding Kansas to the forefront. And the frustrating thing for people of Kansas that are on the um, ground dealing with this issue is that 
the political condition in Washington, D.C. is one that there's no real response. There's silence. And this starts to see the hemorrhaging of the Democratic Party where they're dividing based on their loyalty over this conflict. And this type of conflict will resonate and spill into the halls of our government in uh, the Senate chamber. So basically what happens in an event known as the caning of Senator Charles Sumner in 1856, Charles Sumner from Massachusetts will verbally start to attack the Democratic administration, particularly a Senator Andrew Butler from South Carolina for allowing this type of conflict to ensue in Kansas. Um, he's going to do ad hominem attacks on their character. Now, Butler wasn't around to hear or even defend himself, but Butler's uh, nephew and or cousin, uh, Congressman Preston Brooks, will defend his absent cousin's honor by beating Sumner with a cane. Uh, Brooks will explain that dueling was too good for Sumner, so caning was fit for a dog and it would be fit for Sumner as well. Uh, obviously, the procedure to censor such a radical and violent action uh, did not really kind of even stop Southerners from applauding Brooks and even asking him to hit him again and sending him new replacement canes. Yeah, he became a little bit of a legend in the South in that um, that's how they would congratulate him is that they were sending him new canes to do it some more. Right. Um, but this really gives you a telltale sign of like as much as we might think politics is contentious now. Right. Uh, we don't quite have brawls on the floor of the Senate in this moment. So keeping things in perspective to understand where we are and where we've been is important. So this really is the perfect incident to show you how the conflict out west, over the territories, the, the issue of slavery has come to a head here where we even have, even have senators fighting over this situation. And in 1950, excuse me, in 1854, we see the emergence of a few new political parties because of this, and it's the issue of slavery that's pulling us apart. The Know-Nothing Party, uniquely outside of that argument, is explicitly an anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic party. And one of the things that they do is they pull a lot from the Northern Whigs, and at the same time, the emergence of the Cotton Whigs, the section of the party that is benefiting from the system of slavery, this is what creates really the final death for the Whig Party that had been deteriorating in the past few years. And since the uh, Democrats are going to maintain a majority in Congress in 1854, that's where we get the Kansas-Nebraska Act, there will be a new coalition that will be composed of multiple interest groups uh, that will make up what is now known as the Republican Party. These are free soilers, if you recall, free Soilers are uh, anti-slavery advocates that just want no slavery out in Western territories. They want territory free for the common man, for the working class. They find the institution of slavery or planters to monopolize uh, key choice uh, bits of territory that would be against their competitive competitive interests. You have anti-slavery Whigs. These are Whigs, of course, that are no longer benefiting from the uh, institution of slavery, or they might just be moral and they have some sort of conscience. That's why another name for anti-slavery Whigs is called the conscience Whigs. Then you have anti-slavery Democrats that, again, for a variety of reasons, are against the institution of slavery, as we described before. All of these, uh, these, these small subgroups make up the Republican Party. Their platform pretty simple. They oppose slavery in western territories, and they want to repeal the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the Fugitive Slave Law. Keep in mind that their platform does not include the radical position that the abolitionists or the Liberty Party have of completely eradicating slavery. That is not going to happen until much later in the middle of the Civil War. Yeah, and one of the things that makes that interesting is that those people with the Liberty Party losing out of favor, they have to go somewhere, and many of their supporters end up in the Republican Party just because of the likeness of their mission. Um, but all those things considered, all of a sudden we have a brand new party, and it just happens to be the second largest party in the country. So you have a new rival to 
the Democratic Party in the South. Um, now, this brings us to the election of 1856. The Republicans go with uh, John C. Fremont. Uh, the Democrats nominate James Buchanan. And the Know Nothings nominate Millard Fillmore. The Democrats win pretty convincingly. Um, but what's interesting, and it's kind of a telltale sign of what's to come, is that the Republicans receive electoral votes from 11 of the 16 free states, meaning that they were close to or won at least many electoral districts in those states, if not the whole state themselves. And this was evidence that in the future, if they get the right candidate, the Republican Party could win the next election without a single vote from the South. It would not be necessary to have you even on the ballot right. to win the Electoral College in those southern states the way the electoral map is drawn up in the, in the 1850s and 1860 because of the population concentration in the North. And what becomes a simple mosaic of different type of sub-interest groups forming one Republican Party out of necessity to defend the Democrats? They will become the most powerful political party and will win all but four presidential elections between 1860 up through 1932. Now, once Buchanan is in office, he asked Congress to accept what is referred to as the pro-slavery constitution from Kansas. But the issue is it does not reflect the majority of the people in that region. He's trying to push through quickly that, well, clearly the popular sovereignty has been decided and Kansas has gone with the, the concept of slavery being for their state. But because many Democrats and Republicans reject this issue, the pro-slavery uh, document is objected by the Kansas settlers. Um, that's why it's rejected. Therefore, we move on to the Dred Scott versus Sanford case, which is really paramount to flipping the entire conversation that we've been having about slavery on its head when it comes to territories and where slavery could move and where it couldn't. The case strictly is about an individual named Dred Scott who is suing for his freedom. He traveled from Missouri and was taken to Wisconsin for two years. And what's interesting about it is he finds this as to be a loophole in the Fugitive Slave Act and the original Constitution. Because he was brought there and he didn't escape and was a fugitive, then therefore he should be determined to have resided in a free state. Therefore, he deserves his freedom. And he wants to claim that that residence on the free soil is what made him a free citizen. But the decision is something that changes it. Yeah, in 1857, the, the Supreme Court Justice, Chief Justice um, uh, Roger Tenney, will make his decision of the case. and it, It's based on three conclusions. The first one is that Scott, a slave, has absolutely no right to sue in court because the Founding Fathers did not originally intend African Americans to be included as a United States citizen. He's going to break down very general, vague words like people that is found in the Declaration of Independence as well as the Constitution, and he's going to construe that to mean, look, this is for white Protestants. And the sad part is, if you really take that premise, that follows that logical conclusion. The second claim that he's going to make is Congress cannot have the power to deprive any person of property without due process of the law. And if slaves were property from the first uh, premise, then Congress could not exclude slavery from any territory. Remember and recall from John Locke, the idea for the people to kind of agree upon giving up their natural rights to a commonwealth or a government. The deal is that that government needs to protect life, liberty, and property. And that concept of property is going to be the basis of defending slavery. So something that was used, interestingly enough, to provide for the American Revolution is also going to be used under the same justifications for promoting yeah. the institution of slavery. The, whether or not the government has the right to take right. that from you is the essence of right. the, the legal argument that they're making. And the conclusion is the fact that 
with that in mind, they extrapolate this to also portray the Missouri Compromise as an unconstitutional law. And that because it excluded slavery, specifically in Wisconsin, where Dred Scott is making his case, but also in the other Northern Territories, that is in violation of what Mr. V previously stated as restriction on the property of individuals. So this has a dramatic effect on the country. Most importantly, in my mind, is that all of the free black citizens in the North now have zero rights based on this legislation, uh, this court decision, excuse me. And what happens is the Southern Democrats are excited because now popular sovereignty, Missouri right. Compromise, Missouri's uh, Compromise of 1850, none of it matters. We can go wherever we want with our property, right. and that's significant to them. And then on the other hand, you have the situation where the Republicans believe that this is almost a case that is too good to be true for the Democrats. This must have been something that was orchestrated by them. Maybe they put this uh, case forward as test case litigation to go with a pro-slavery argument, and they call this the slave power conspiracy. So the Dred Scott decision and the controversy surrounding it became becomes the focal point in the Lincoln-Douglas debates in 1858. Lincoln will challenge the Democratic uh, senator from Illinois, Stephen Douglas, for his seat, and uh, both will host a series of debates concerning the topic of slavery specifically to win these votes. Uh, Lincoln will, of course, make his famous House Divided speech, and Douglas will give his famous Freeport Doctrine. Douglas ultimately will win the battle, but he will lose the war. The House Divided speech, one of Lincoln's more famous because he makes this claim that America cannot go on being half of one thing and half of another. We must make a decision. And to be honest, when you look at it, and Lincoln wasn't strong one way or the other either. He's a politician looking to get elected. He was looking to see what the people wanted to hear as well. So he doesn't necessarily say, I am strongly this or strongly that, but we have to make a decision. Um, on the other hand, Douglas is making this argument. If you're concerned about this um, Dred Scott decision affecting you and your state, don't worry about it. The local jurisdictions will still have to enforce the rights and protect the rights of slave owners. So if you're concerned about it, just... Don't enforce those policies. Don't return the slaves if they escape. And don't um, have the slave trade in these areas. That's all you have to worry about. So in this election, Douglas happens to win the battle, meaning the election for Senate. But he loses the war because he then later runs for president and Lincoln wins the 1860 election. And despite the very rational or seemingly rational justifications on how to handle a world where it's being torn apart by slavery, some people start to feel frustrated with the democratic system. The legislative process has basically endorsed it with the Kansas-Nebraska Act, slavery. The Supreme Court has essentially endorsed slavery through the Dred Scott decision. We have people caning and beating each other in the halls of Senate. And because the system is failing the people, some individuals will take this frustration and vent it through violence. One such individual is a man named John Brown, and in an event known as John Brown's Raid at Harper's Ferry in 1859, might I add, it is during uh, the, the, pre the, the prepping of the election of 1860, right? So it's a big election year. People are getting ready to have support on the Republican and Democratic side. Him and his acolytes, his sons, are going to attack a federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, Virginia. So the idea that he comes up with, the plan that John Brown has, is to capture the arms that are here in this uh, in Harper's Ferry, spread them out, and give thousands of weapons to all these slaves to help a rebellion, start a revolt. And the thing is, he only goes with a group of 19 men. And he thought that this would just happen naturally. Once the slaves heard about it, they would come flying from the hillsides to 
be part of this revolt. Very few participated at all. So he was caught there with too many weapons to carry out and not enough men to do it. And all of a sudden, local militia comes in. And then soon enough, you have Robert E. Lee being ordered with the Marines to capture Brown after two days of this rebellion. Um, the local people are the ones that kept him from being able to escape. But his followers, many were killed that first couple days. Those that weren't were captured, convicted for treason, and hung by the state of Virginia. Now, what's more important about the event itself is the response to the event. So moderate northerners will condemn the acts of violence to the deaf ears of the South. To many in the South, they're going to perceive the North to generally be radicalized. Um, radical northerners are going to hail Brown as a martyr to the cause of abolitionism. And part of that perception, in a large part, has to do with the way the media portrayed it. And if you look, there's a there's uh, many examples of newspapers exaggerating the original just uh, uh, reporting of this crime. 1,500 men and 1,500 slaves, or 250, is, is varying reports. Only a few Southern papers got the final number right when they settled the, uh, the account. But what this did was it created the environment that the North could not be trusted, and the South needed to be careful at what type of capitulation they did to them. This kind of culminates in the election of 1860, and many believe that this election, while definitely not... Um, the only reason that started the Civil War was the spark that lit the powder keg that has been amassing since, I would argue, the inception of the Republic with the Three-Fifths Compromise. Mm. After deciding between William Seward and Abraham Lincoln, the Republicans will nominate the quiet log cabin man uh, from Illinois. The breakup of the Democratic Party, there will be too much inner fighting, uh, will cause this to split, and they will kind of have their own nominees. For the North, the Northern Democrats will elect a uh, moderate, uh, popular sovereignty guy, Stephen Douglas, who has won the senatorial election uh, two years before, and John Breckinridge will be the Southern Democrats' choice. Again, man who will probably support and defend the institution of slavery. A fourth political party will emerge, and this will be a coalition of former Whigs, know-nothings, and moderate Democrats. That will be nominated John Bell under the Constitutional Union Party. Lincoln wins due to a split in the electoral vote. Again, not gaining the majority, but the plurality of this vote. One of the things that I find really fascinating about this split electoral vote, as you said, is Lincoln only wins 40% of the electoral, uh, excuse me, of the popular vote. But he was, in some cases in the South, not even on the ballot. And so why this matters is if you're a Southern states' rights, a slave-protecting uh, government, and you're fearful of the federal government influencing and dictating to you the terms of how you should live, the fact that someone can get elected president of the United States without getting one single vote from the entire cotton South is pretty astonish astonishing to them. And this is really the sign of the times that this is a government that is not working for us. This is a government that clearly this president is never going to pass legislation or sign legislation that is going to be in our favor. We need to get out now because the time for compromise is gone. This will cause such anger in the South that on December 19, 1860, South Carolina will secede from the Union because of this. Yeah, and one of the things you have to think about is that if the Democratic Party never split, Lincoln probably never wins. And then who do we have ushering in this new era of politics? Do we have somebody who's willing to defend the Union and try and keep it together at all costs? Would they have even seceded? Because a lot of the Southern states cite Lincoln's election as an example for them is why their rights are not going to be protected, specifically their rights to keep slaves. And one of the things you have to look at is 
the Republican Party was an abolitionist party, but they were not as radical as the South believed. Right. And one of the things that takes uh, place early on is Lincoln cannot sell the war to the North simply by saying, well, we need to end slavery. He has to give the goal of maintaining and keeping the Union together. So after South Carolina, the rest of the South shortly follows. We end up having a situation where all of the deep South, the cotton South is gone. And the one stipulation in the new government they create that is modeled off our Constitution, the Confederate States of America created in February of 1861, where delegates from these states meet, they explicitly say that there will be no restriction on slavery and the use of tariffs. So therefore, you have a situation where the current government that is being established, these states in rebellion, have created a separate nation on our own territory. And essentially, they're creating another country, another republic. And and Congress needs to respond. They did that through what we call the Crittenden Compromise. This is going to be Congress's last effort to keep the Union intact. They're going to promise to the South and the Southern delegates that slavery will continue to exist below the Missouri Compromise line and kind of restore the balance that was made before the Kansas-Nebraska Act. But now it's a little too little too late. Southerners are going to become so enraged and believed they are now fighting for the cause of liberty, much like how the people in the American Revolution were thinking they were fighting for the cause of liberty in the past. Lincoln said he would have never signed the bill into law anyway, so this, of course, has never would have been put into effect, but it just gives you an indication of how willing the North was to acquiesce to the this, this institution of slavery in order to keep the Union again uh, uh, together. This theme of compromising or keeping the Union together at all costs will kind of continue to uh, be found throughout the Civil War until 1863. We will talk more about that in our next lecture. Yes, yeah, so as we end the section on the Union in peril, we see that it has led to the separation and the fracture of our nation into two separate uh, organizations or governments. All right, we'll pick up from here on the next one. Take, take care. Take care.